0: walking with us for the last, I don't know, three months or so, you know we've been working through the entirety of the scriptures, focusing on the role of the third member of the Trinity we call Holy Spirit. And as we've walked through this series, we've been focusing on four particular outcomes that we want to cultivate in our hearts and in this community. First, that this community would, would acquire a knowledge, excuse me, A knowledge of our God that moves beyond simple information. A knowledge that lives in our gut and shapes our imagination. Second, we want to foster ordinary encounters with the Spirit of God. I think I'm just foolish enough to believe that there's holy ground all around us and that God might be inviting us into an encounter even in the ordinary moments of life. Third, we long to be radically open to God. Something we just sang about. And then fourth, we want to do the Jesus stuff. We want to experience the fullness of his invitation to experience the kingdom and the here and the now. And so to prepare ourselves to live out the prayer, come Holy Spirit. We've been reflecting on the Spirit's work throughout the biblical narrative And so today, our aim is to discover what it means for us to be spirit led disciples of Jesus. But even that aim leads us to an important question What does it mean to be a disciple? Take a moment to actually put a definition to that in your mind. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Some have defined it as Christian trivia, someone who knows the full range of the Christian vocabulary and can speak the speak, if you will. Some have defined it as a set of habits or a perfect quiet time streak. They've got the app that has shown them they've got a 365-day streak with Jesus, and that's what it means to be a disciple. Or maybe some have defined it as a curriculum you go through at your church. You do the four-step process, and then bada-bang, bada-boom, you are a disciple. In the West, we've oftentimes settled for a Christianity that says we can come to Christ, but we don't actually have to learn from him. We can maintain our spending habits. We can maintain our viewing habits. We can live a thoroughly American life with a Christian bumper sticker and we're good. And I think one of my fears for this community is that we are tempted to make Christ just another component of our self-care routine. Like I work out. I see a counselor, I drink a smoothie that smells like lawn clippings, I use all of my vacation time, and I pray occasionally. Or I attend church once a month. Jesus is just another aspect of me being the best me I can be. But the spiritual practices are not Christian life hacks. Discipleship or spiritual formation is not just Jesus-branded self-care, So, back to the question at hand what does it mean to be a disciple? Dallas Willard defines discipleship as this being with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become like that, what that person is an apprentice. A disciple of Jesus is learning from him how to lead their life as he would lead their life if he were they. Leave it to a philosopher to give a tongue twister. I think the simplest way to say this is a disciple is one who is in the process of becoming like Jesus. Jesus' invitation to his first disciples in Luke 9 is this. And Jesus said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. This is a far more intense, more sacrificial and more compelling vision of discipleship than anything we've settled for here in the West. And my fear again for this community is that we settle for something less than what Jesus has to offer us. That we settle for a life that looks like everyone else's just set to the Maverick City Music soundtrack. <laughs> That we settle for something less than the entirety of Jesus. And it's that settling that prompts the Apostle Paul to write his letter to a church in Galatia. It's in that work that Paul offers this beautiful and compelling vision of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Attentive to the work of the Spirit in our lives. But Paul is also writing from a Deep place of concern, dare I say, frustration, due to the compromise of the Galatians, and so on that note, I want to do like a five thousand foot overview of the book of Galatians. Galatians, excuse me, which fits nicely into three movements. And then I want to key in specifically on chapter 5, in which Paul offers instructions on what it means to be spirit-led disciples. And then we'll reflect on what it means for us to be a disciple. Does that sound good? Cool, cool, cool. doesn't sound good to anybody. Just me. (laughs) So here's the tea on Paul's letter to the Galatians. The Jesus movement begins in the Jewish people, but quickly moves to the non-Jewish people called Gentiles. And as this movement is expanded, it is grappling with what it means to be a follower of the Jewish Messiah. And so quickly, within the first couple of years of the early Christian movement, rose a Jewish faction that believed that non-Jewish people, Gentiles, to truly be a part of God's family, had to adopt certain practices of the Torah. Namely, male circumcision, kosher eating, and Sabbath observance. This is a debate detailed in Acts 15. You can read the whole thing there. And some of these Jewish Christians made their way to Galatia to undermine Paul's ministry and to convince the Galatians to adopt the practices of the Torah. And I imagine this is Paul's frustrated text as he's receiving word of what's happening. And he poses this argument offering an alternative vision of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Because ultimately he believes what's going on is a distortion of the gospel. So Galatians 1 and 2 begin with a defense of Paul's message and authority. If you remember, Paul has this extraordinary encounter on the road to Damascus, where he is commissioned by the risen Jesus to go to the non-Jewish world to announce the gospel. He then explains later in his ministry that he goes to Jerusalem, and he meets with the other apostles, namely Peter and James. So, to be clear, in the book of Galatians, Paul is pretty salty, and when he name-drops James and Peter, it's not for good reasons. So there's more on that here in a second. So when Paul meets them, he explains that he has not been requiring Torah observance of his converts. And they are supportive when he meets with them. But then the plot thickens. In chapter 2, Paul recounts a moment in which Peter joins him in the city of Antioch. And when Peter first arrives, he is mingling and eating with non-Jewish Christians. But when the members of the Jewish faction arrive from Jerusalem, Peter buckles under their pressure, choosing to separate himself and avoid his non-Jewish friends. And uh, Paul is probably an eight on the Enneagram and confronts Peter on this hypocrisy, calling it a betrayal of the gospel. I'm pretty sure that Peter learns from this moment and they become friends later, but Paul doesn't mention any reconciling moment. He's just like, I confronted Peter for what he's done in this. It's good to know even as Peter continues in his apostolic journey, he still had moments to grow from. And at the center of Paul's claim that this is a distortion of the gospel, he writes this in chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The central claim of Paul's message, of Paul's gospel, is that when one puts their trust in Jesus, what is true of Jesus becomes true of them. He then continues by spelling out the implications of this gospel to the whole world in Galatians 3 and 4. Where it's all about God's purpose for a new family on the basis of trust. And so Paul begins this long argument starting with a man named Abraham. So Abraham uh, is a man who is called by God and is declared righteous long before the law existed. Like, if you think about the biblical timeline, Abraham speaks to God long before Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And yet, even without the law, God reckons Abraham right before him on the basis, not of Abraham's deeds, but on the basis of his trust. So, God, or Abraham's right standing before the Lord was not on the basis of keeping the law or the Torah, but on his trust in God. And in Genesis 12, God reveals to Abraham that his purpose has been and will always be to have one large multi-ethnic family relating to God on the basis of trust. This is what is written of in Genesis 12. God says to Abraham, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, So that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's aim from the beginning is to have a large, multi ethnic family relating to him on the basis of trust. And so anticipating the next question, Paul launches into a dense explanation of God's purpose behind the law and the Torah. It's complex. I won't get into all of it, but I'll mention two things. He first claims that the Torah was given after the promise of Abraham. So the promise given to Abraham supersedes the law. And then second, the Torah Excuse me, the first was that it was given after, and the second that the Torah given to Moses at Mount Sinai was always a temporary measure. Paul believed that the Torah functioned to expose Israel's sins, offering them strict rules in order to keep them on the straight and narrow until something more permanent could be done about their bad behavior. He gave them a straight and narrow path to help them on the way to love and righteousness, to learn what it means to be the people of God. And those rules and regulations existed to help guide them on the straight and narrow. And Paul believes that Jesus is the something more permanent. That Jesus became the most faithful Israelite, embodying what it means to love God and love neighbor a total fulfillment of the law. And Jesus made it possible for anyone of any ethnicity, of any nation to become a participant in the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. So this is what Paul writes in Galatians 3, 26 through 29. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, through trust. For as many of you as were baptized in Christ have Put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All people are now invited to be disciples of Jesus, learning what it means to be a part of God's new multi-ethnic family and this brings us to chapter five our teaching text if you'll give me about uh let's say 10 minutes we'll work our way through this and we'll f- reflect on how to put paul's instructions into practice we doing okay okay no we're not all right fine i'll keep going regardless in chapter five paul answers the question if jesus followers don't have to follow the law, then how are they to know what to do? How are you supposed to know what to do if you don't have rules and regulations? Anybody grow up in a strict environment and you just expect, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do, here's what you touch, here's what you can't touch. In chapter 5, Paul answers that question. His simple answer is the spirit. Christ now lives in us through the Holy Spirit, making us new humans. To the Church of Rome, Paul will write this For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbringing. Like Abraham, we listen to the voice of God leading us into a new way of living. It's now no longer a matter of what you can eat and what you can't eat. It's a matter of listening to the voice of the Spirit guide us in what it means to be the people of God. We're given the opportunity not to hear God's voice second-hand, but to actually hear the whisper of God in the Spirit. Let's pick up in verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. Skip down to verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law, the whole Torah, is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Remember, remember Paul is writing to a fractured community grappling with what it means to be disciples of Jesus, grappling with a community who's trying to decide who can I eat with and who can't I eat with. And Paul's reminder is that you are free, but that your freedom is not so that you can do whatever you want. The freedom won by Christ is not a pretext for self-indulgence or for excess legalism. It is the liberty to love one another. It is the freedom and creativity to think, how do I best love the person in front of me? How do I learn to love my neighbor as myself? Paul is quoting from Leviticus 19, 18, saying that the whole of the Torah, the entirety of the law can be summarized in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. You'll notice that the scripture never says, love everybody. That is in part because you can't. The instruction is to love your neighbor, the person you can see, the person you can act on behalf of, the person you can help, the person you can serve. Paul's definition for love is service. So his first instruction is to serve one another. I think it might be possible that Paul had in mind a particular dinner Jesus was at with his disciples. As dessert was just being finished, Jesus got up from the table, wrapped a towel around his waist, and began to wash the feet of his disciples. The God of creation, the one that spoke reality into existence and created humanity from the dust, was staining his hands with the dirt from his disciples' feet. For God so loved the world that he stained his hands with the dirt from his disciples' feet. And once his work was completed, he gave a simple instruction. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given to you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In Jesus, we are learning a new way to be family, a new way to be human. The days of factions, infighting, pettiness, and manipulation are over. They will know you are my disciples not by the website, not by your voting record, not by how Midwestern nice you are, not by your Instagram bio, but by your willingness to lovingly serve. Scott McKnight writes this, This is what it means to live in the spirit. The premier expression of the Spirit is love. And the Spirit-prompted person is the one who loves God and loves others. Spiritual, Spiritual formation is formation into love. Here's a simple truth that I cannot get around. You cannot do discipleship alone. Jesus died at the hands of others for others. A life of self-directed podcasts, theology textbooks, and isolation is not the discipleship of Jesus. Without loving service, our discipleship to Jesus is bankrupt because it is not discipleship to Jesus. Robert Mulholland really drives this point home. He writes, if you want a good litmus test of your spiritual growth, simply examine the nature and quality of the relationships you have with others. Examine the relationships you have with others. May the aim of our lives be to continue to become people of love, that our lives could be summed up, they loved their neighbor as themselves. Paul will continue in verses 16 through 26 to contrast this new humanity, this community of loving service with the old humanity. He calls those of the new humanity to walk in the spirit and to resist the habits of the old humanity, what Paul calls the works of the flesh. Now, um, you know, some people have weird words like they hate moist. I've also heard flesh is one of those words, so trigger warning for about the next five minutes. I'm about to say flesh a, a fair bit, so sorry about it. Uh, Flesh is this Greek term sarx. Now sarx can take on several different meanings similar to to many English words. Sarx can mean a human body like flesh and bone. It can mean ethnicity or racial identity. And Paul uses sarx in both of these contexts in other places positively to refer to the human body or ethnic identity. It's very clear he's not referring to it positively in our text. Here Paul is using Sarks in a third way to refer to what I would like to call our disordered desires. The sarks, or flesh, is that part of human beings that is bent, broken and fractured. It is that animalistic or primal ache for instant gratification. on one hand, that side of us that feels very natural in another way incredibly wrong. Scott McKnight again writes, it's best to think of the flesh like this. We are born into and socialized in a fallen world. We embody some good habits and some bad ones. Our habits form our character, and since our habits are not all good, our character gets corrupted. Our corrupted character, like some agent with power in our life, steers us into a deepening of our corrupted actions and character. Paul says the outworkings or the habits of the flesh are obvious, and I think Eugene Peterson knocks it out of the park with his paraphrase. He writes, It's obvious what kind of life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage, frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness, trinket gods, mag- magic show religion, paranoid loneliness, cutless, cutthroat. I am <laughs> cutthroat competition, all-consuming yet never satisfied wants, a brutal temper. An impotence to love or to be loved. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habits of depersonalizing everyone into a rival. Uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions. Ugly parodies of community. I could go on. But this isn't the first time I have warned you, you know. If you use your freedom this way, you will not inherit God's kingdom. These are all the ways of living that dehumanize other people, destroy relationships, and fracture our communities. Paul adds that while the Torah prohibited these types of behaviors, it actually had no power in helping God's people find freedom from these things. But in Christ, the way of flesh has been put to death, making it possible for us to experience Christ's life as our own. Remember Paul's central claim. For those who trust in Jesus, what is true of him because true becomes true of them. For those that put their trust in Jesus and rely on the Spirit, the character of Christ is grown in them. Verse 22, probably the most talked about Sunday school verse ever. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. First notice that fruit is singular. It's fruit, not fruits. These virtues are not a buffet of produce that we pick from. Rather, this is a description of a life lived in the Spirit. And I think it's better that we leave them together. Imagine a person who is loving and joyful and is a compelling human being. A person who is peaceful and patient, injects calm into every situation. A person who is good and loyal is the best kind of friend. A person who is gentle and self-controlled doesn't need the law to tell them what to do. They've mastered their desires and can be a force for good in the world. Paul's invitation is to hold these things together. Second, notice that this is a description of Christ. Paul is once again saying that what is true of Jesus can be true of those who walk in the Spirit. Let that thought settle in your mind just for a second. That What is true of Jesus can be true of you. Can we put aside the the WWJD and the sermons you heard in youth group just for a second to actually consider what it would look like to embody the character of Christ? That Paul is saying that for those who trust and learn to walk with the Spirit, that the very character of Christ will be produced in you. Not that you will act like you care, but that you will actually be a person of love. Not that you will act happy or satisfied, but that you will actually be a person of joy. Not that you will act cool or undisturbed, but that you will actually be a person of peace. A non anxious presence in the midst of a chaotic world. Paul's promise is not that you will be empowered to behave in these ways but that through discipleship to Jesus these fruits will produce in us will be produced in us in such a way that they can become automatic responses that our disordered desires can be transformed and our hearts renovated your instinctual response to pettiness can actually be patience Your emotional reaction to someone cutting you off in traffic and almost spilling your $8 coffee can actually be kindness that our automatic impulse and gut-level reactions to whatever life has to offer can be transformed by the Spirit. In Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the chaos of the world and brings about order. And the Spirit will do that again, but this time it's the chaos of the human heart. The Spirit of God started creation by reorganizing the raw materials and will begin new creation by reorganizing the raw materials here. In 2 Corinthians 3, Paul alludes to the Spirit of God writing this new law on our heart. And I think he's actually picking up on a prophecy of Jeremiah's in which Jeremiah writes this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, I will put my laws within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. From the beginning, God's aim has been to have a human family, this multi-ethnic, multi-racial people who relate to him on the basis of trust, who share in his character and love, and the work of the Spirit is to write this new law of love on our heart so that we may experience the love of God towards us and express it to all we come in contact with, our neighbors. Any vision of discipleship that falls short of that is something less than what Jesus has on offer. Any gospel that doesn't invite you to experience the transformation of the Spirit is not the gospel of Jesus. His invitation is to learn my way, to sit at my feet and become people of love. So let's reflect on what this might mean for us. I think I may have taken longer than 10, but forgive me. I'll say it plainly. I genuinely believe that the Spirit can renovate our hearts and our desires and that we can be transformed. But That doesn't mean it comes automatically, and it definitely doesn't mean it will be easy. Paul names a conflict that takes place in our chest a war between flesh and spirit, the war between our disordered desires and the love of God and love of neighbor. We long to be people of love, choosing to follow the way of the spirit, but there is that other part of us that is always whispering, always tempting, always inviting us to give in. This is not some angel on one side and demon on the other kind of tempting us. This is a war that takes place right here. It's a war that we are all very familiar with. And on one hand, that is a bummer. Like, it's not fun to think about the chaos that happens in our chest cavity. I think that until we have experienced the fullness of God's redemption, that war is going to continue raging. And so that is a bummer. But on the other hand, there is a comfort in knowing that I'm not alone and you're not alone. There's comfort in knowing that Peter messed up. That he gave into social pressures and Paul still named this conflict that he clearly understood well, the war between flesh and spirit. But Paul is saying while we cannot yet rid ourselves of the war, we can daily crucify the flesh and choose to walk in the way of the spirit. The promise of this text, the testimony of history, and simply my own experience is that we can trust the Spirit to partner with us and to produce the character of Christ in us so long as we do our part to cultivate a life conducive to the work of the Spirit. In Philippians, Paul writes this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is to say that there is a part for you to do, and there is a part for God to do. To that old way of life, your habits of sin, your inclination to disordered and destructive living, Paul says, put them to death. He picks up on Jesus' instructions to follow him and pick up your cross. Now, if I left it there, that would seem that this is all an exercise in willpower. And I'm like, good luck, because I know you all have worked out every day this year. This isn't an application of our willpower, though I think there is some application of our willpower And maybe in the light of the Protestant Reformation, we've said, ah, don't worry about willpower at all. No, there is an exercise of bringing the full of ourselves to God and saying, I am willing to be in the fight with you. But in a moment of temptation or of corrupted desire, we have to choose not to do what we want to do in a moment, but to do what our deeper desire is. In a moment of sexual temptation, the strongest desire may be to use another human being for your own pleasure, whether this is an app, a website, or a bar. But I think if you were to step back for a moment, the strongest desire is not really your deepest desire, because we all long to be people of love who cherish and respect human beings. The strongest desire in a single moment is not necessarily the deepest desire. So in a moment, it's learning to go, not my will, but your will be done. Paul's instruction is to learn to deny yourself. Refuse to accept that the fleeting moment of anger, pettiness, or pleasure is not really what you want. This might mean that there is an app you need to delete or a DM conversation you need to end, a purchase you need to cancel, or an emotional response that you need to master. Paul's invitation, echoing Jesus, is to deny yourself and then to discover life. And then with that, learn to stay in step with the Spirit. Worship team, if you would join me. Paul's invitation is to live a life with intentional and cultivated awareness of God. That we can all think and actually be aware of God in any given moment. There's this classic Christian book called Practicing the Presence of God. And in it, uh, this 17th century French monk named Brother Lawrence Details a series of conversations. And uh, he says this In order to know God, we must often think of him. And when we come to love him, we shall then also think of him often. For our heart will be with our treasure. In moments of anger or pride, insecurity, jealousy, greed, or laziness, These moments can be invaded by the empowering presence of God. This is possible, but it doesn't come automatically. Greg Boyd reminds us, God's presence in the present moment is the single most important task of the Christian life. And that no spiritual discipline is more foundational or transforming than this one. I would actually disagree a little bit with that quote. It's not that there isn't one that's more foundational. It's that every spiritual discipline, if I can peel back the curtain a little bit, every spiritual discipline is about this single point, becoming aware of what God is doing in the present moment. Sabbath is about learning to recognize God in the midst of our rest, that you do not have to produce something for him to love you. Prayer is about this ongoing conversation with God, Him inviting us to be a part of His conspiracy to push back the darkness with light. That reading our scripture is an invitation to see His work played out in the lives of the saints and imagine what He might do in us and through us. Every spiritual practice meant to draw our attention to the spirit. Now we live crazy, hectic, disordered lives. And you driving down Southwest Boulevard on a Thursday in the midst of rush hour is one of the most ungodly situations I can think of. You can't turn left. It's a whole thing. Like it is the worst. But imagine a people who saw these moments of frustration, these moments of anger as an invitation to go, there's a conversation to be had. That my God is in the midst with me, that he is sitting in the rush hour traffic teaching me what it means to be patient. You'll notice that in our passage, Paul says, walk with the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live by the Spirit and stay in step with the Spirit. All these metaphors drive at the same idea that there has to be an intention, an awareness of what the Spirit is up to. And I dare say we're probably moving a lot faster than the Spirit. I think there's a reason Paul uses the verb walk and not run. That he uses the phrase stay in step and not try to keep pace with. Paul's inviting us to slow down and see every moment as holy before our God. To see every moment as an invitation to have the divine presence of God invade our lives and form the fruits of the Spirit in us. This is Jesus' invitation into life abundant that we might learn what it is to be his people experience his character if you would stand with me as we prepare to come to the table of the lord and do confession each week we pray the prayer of confession and we come to the table of the lord and then we take time to respond because i think confession And receiving are these moments that cultivate the right posture in our heart. Um, I've been challenged by this thought a lot lately. We oftentimes come to church um, ready to see a few people, might enjoy some coffee, we're prepared to maybe hear a half decent sermon, maybe, who knows. Um, But we aren't actually expecting to meet with God that we show up in all the messiness of life and we're actually not in the mind space or the head space to actually be aware that the living God is in our midst. And so as we pray the prayer of confession, as we prepare our hearts, as we come to receive from the table of the Lord, may it be an opportunity to to, um, cultivate the right posture before our God that it might be the invitation to the conversation so if you would let's prepare to say the prayer of confession the words will be on the screen let's pray it together most merciful God we confess that we have sinned against you in thought word and deed by what we have done and by what we have left We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name, amen. For the believer, the table is an invitation to be reminded that we are the family of. For the unbeliever, the table is this invitation to taste and see that the Lord is good. For at the table we declare Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. So here's what will happen over the next few moments. Our invitation will be to come and receive. And then the worship team will just continue in one of the songs we've been singing. And this is your opportunity to start having a conversation to actually think that he is in this room ready to talk to you. So cultivate your heart by receiving from the table and then let's have a conversation with God. Come and receive from the table.